There is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. Thank you. Thank you. You mustn't use up my time. Thank you so much. I'm really thrilled to be here, especially thrilled that Valerie and her daughter, Elizabeth, can be with me here on the platform. And I know that it's not very likely that you're going to remember much of what I say, but I hope that you might take home with you something that I write. And so just very quickly, I want to mention three things. One of them is a little booklet for children between the ages of 10 and 16 called Sex is a Lot More Than Fun. Another is my newsletter. If you would like to receive this personal letter every other month, you need not pay money, but you do need to sign your name at the book table where my husband is. And my most recent book is called The Shaping of a Christian Family. It is the story of the home in which I grew up. And it's my hope that it will help young parents who want to have a Christian home but didn't come from such a home. When I was a very lonely Bible school student in Alberta, Canada, there was a knock on my door one day, and I opened the door to find the most radiant face framed by white hair, a lovely face with pink cheeks, beautiful smile, a dear lady that I had never seen before, and she said in her wonderful Scottish accent, are you Betty Howard? And I said, yes. Oh, Betty dear, she said, and she always called me Betty dear. You don't know me, but I know you, and I've been praying for you. And if there's ever a time when you feel like you'd have a, like to have a cup of Scottish tea in a scone, just pop down to my little apartment, and we'll have a little chat. Well, you can be sure that I took Mom Cunningham up on that wonderful invitation. And many a bitter, cold winter afternoon, I made my way to her little tiny basement apartment where she made that cup of tea and those scones. And then she would listen to my tales of woe, my problems, my stories. And she would always open her Bible. And I think more times than not, she would read Romans 15, and I, it just completely goes out of my mind. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. And I know that Mom Cunningham recognized in this lonely girl somebody who needed the God of hope and that joy and peace. And I know of no one in my experience who has made a greater difference outside of my own mother than that dear woman who personified for me joy and peace and thankfulness. And she was widowed about four years after I was, and I visited her in Canada. And we were talking about what it's like to be widows. And she told me about how there were certain things that she just felt 
so bad about things that she should have done and she hadn't, things that she should not have done and she had. And she said to me, I prayed, oh Lord, why didn't you show me? And he said, because you weren't ready to be shown. You weren't ready to be shown. Now this is a huge convention. The elaborate preparations which Susan and her team have made for us are rather staggering. The pages of instruction, I said to Valerie this afternoon, never in all my experience of speaking have I received such sheaves <laughs> of paper. And I don't know how many times I read them over and I've forgotten almost everything that I read, so I have to be steered around. Thousands of women are here, and so we can automatically conclude that this is an important conference, right? If it's big, it's important. If you have enough pieces of paper and enough people running around with badges and things, <laughs> that makes it important. And you came from 50 states, I don't know how many. But I want to say to you this afternoon that its importance is going to be measured only in the individual lives of each woman here. Have you been thinking big in terms of this conference, anticipating that you are going to be learn you are going to learn how to think power? You've heard about power dressing and power lunches and all that sort of thing. Well, I may shock you by saying that this afternoon I want to encourage you to think small. Think small. One of the very great saints of the church, when she was dying, was asked for a last message. And her message was, make yourselves small. Make yourselves very small. I want to speak on one word, which I believe is the key to supernatural power. We're not talking about what the world considers power. It's one word that is the equivalent to those four words of Mom Cunningham's. Ready to be shown. And the word is meekness. Meekness. Do you think weakness, as soon as you hear that word meekness, do you know who the Bible says was the meekest man? It was Moses. Would you think of Moses as a weak man? If you have in your mind, as I always have when I think of Moses, Michelangelo's sculpture and paintings, I think of Moses as probably one of the most powerful, redoubtable, awesome men in all of Scripture. And this is my husband, Lars. You can meet him while he adjusts the microphone.
Bible says that Moses was the meekest man who ever lived, undoubtedly meaning up until that point, David speaks of meekness. The meek, he says, will he guide in judgment. Are you struggling with a question of guidance? The great question is, are you ready to be shown if it happens to be different from the pathway that you anticipate yourself? Isaiah, would you think of him as a weak man? Isaiah says the meek will rejoice in the Lord. How about the Apostle Paul? Weak? No, but he speaks of the fruits of the Spirit. One of the fruits is meekness. And then, of course, the strongest man who ever lived, Jesus, calls you and me. If we are tired and overburdened, he says, come to me. All you who are tired and overburdened, and I will give you rest. But there are three conditions. We have to come. And then he says, take my yoke upon you. What do you think that yoke is? I believe that the yoke that Jesus is speaking of is the double yoke. You've seen yokes for two oxen, a wooden frame that goes across the backs of the necks of two oxen to keep them moving together, working together, pulling together. And I picture the double yoke, Jesus bending his neck under one side, and he says, take my yoke upon you. I am to bend my neck under that same yoke. The yoke, I believe, is the will of God. What was the yoke that Jesus took when he came to earth? He said, lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek, meek and humble in heart. Some translations say gentle and humble, meek and lowly. And as I think back over my 65 years, I think of the women who have made the greatest difference in my life. And I can say without qualification that every single one of them has been a woman of true, holy meekness. Not a woman who thought about power dressing and power lunching, but a woman who had bent her neck under that yoke. Women who were ready to be shown, teachable, in other words, receptive, and who exemplifies that receptiveness more beautifully, more perfectly, than that little Virgin Mary, who, when she was given a stunning announcement by a dazzling visitor, responded without hesitation, without ifs, ands, buts, what ifs, with these words, behold the handmaiden of the Lord, let it happen as you say. Anything you say, Lord, I'll take it. Here I am, your handmaiden, teachable, receptive, gentle, 
Many of you, I'm sure, have come to this conference tired already. And if you came here to get physical rest, I think you've come to the wrong place. <laughs> You're not very likely, not in a room with four women. Many of you are overburdened. Many of you are carrying burdens that would make my problems, all the problems of my life, look like feathers. I don't know you, I don't know your burdens, but I do know the one who knows. But Jesus says, come to me, all you who are tired and overburdened, and I will give you rest. Could he have said that? Would he have said that if he were not totally capable of giving you rest? There isn't any human being that can ever give you rest. We can provide you with a place to rest, perhaps, we may make it possible for you to rest in some ways, but we can never give it to you. And Jesus says, if you're tired and overburdened, I am the one that can give you rest, not relaxation, but rest. But if you're going to receive that rest, you must come to him, not to Elizabeth Elliot, but to Jesus. I will give you rest. The second thing you must do is to take that yoke, bend your neck, bow your head, and take the same attitude that Jesus took when he said, I have come to do the will of my Father. Now much of our tiredness, much of our burdens are caused by conflict, aren't they? And where does the conflict come from? Well, I was examining myself as I know that I must do every time I'm going to get up and dish out what I believe is the truth of God to other people. I better be cautious and asking God, Lord, touch my heart, speak to me, burn my conscience. And it happens almost every single time. Whatever the subject I'm going to speak on will be the subject on which God puts his finger on the sorest place in my soul. And yesterday, that's exactly what he did. And I can't tell you the details, but I recognized that I was very far from being truly meek as a holy woman is meant to be. The conflict came from the desire to protect myself to excuse myself, to think about my time, my space, my rights, concerns which are completely foreign to Jesus and certainly ought to be completely foreign to you and me. There is no irritation whatsoever in a true, meek spirit. The purpose of Jesus was to love his father and to do what his father said. That's what I really want. So he says to me and he says to you, come, take my yoke, learn of me. And we cannot learn one single thing at this conference without a teachable spirit. The spirit which refuses to say, but wait a minute, that doesn't mean so-and-so. I get so tired 
of hearing people say what God doesn't mean in all those hard verses. And there are many hard sayings of Jesus. He said, for example, if you don't sell everything you possess, you cannot be my disciple. Now, everybody here knows what that doesn't mean, don't you? But all I want to know, if I'm going to be gentle, meek, teachable, ready to be shown, is, Lord, what does it mean? What does it mean for me? What does it mean now in the sore place in my life? Teach me, Lord. Teach me to be meek. Now, one thing that meekness does not mean is weakness. Another thing is phlegmatic. Now, there are four kinds of temperaments, I'm told, and these are very ancient categories that go back thousands of years. One of them is phlegmatic. Well, I don't know what I am, but I can tell you that I'm not phlegmatic. I'm probably a horrible combination of choleric and melancholic. <laughs> but those are, my, those are natural dispositions. We are not talking about a natural disposition when we talk about meekness, because there isn't a woman in the world, I'm quite sure of this, who was born meek. <laughs> you and I are operators, manipulators, schemers. We've got our rights at heart. We've got our time. We've got our space. We have our own ideas of what we want God to do for us. And when he comes at us with a surprise, do we say, behold the handmaiden of the Lord, let it happen as you say? Well, I had to pray for forgiveness. Meekness is not being phlegmatic, that's a natural disposition. It's not sluggishness. It's not being just too lazy to bother to get into an argument. Just anything goes kind of thing. You know, there are two sides to all of these natural temperaments. Too fearful to speak up, indifferent meekness is not feminine fragility. Psalm 25, verse 9. And I thought I had my marker right there, Psalm 25, verse 9. And here's what it says. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Now, can he teach me his way if I'm not ready to be shown. Guide me in your truth and teach me. And as any teacher, and I'm sure there are many teachers here this, this afternoon, as we know, there is no better way of learning than trying to teach. And the minute you start dishing it out, the Holy Spirit of God has to dish it out to us, doesn't he? James 1.21 describes humble acceptance of God's truth, teachability. And James 3.13 speaks of the meekness that comes from wisdom. The truly wise are meek. Have you ever seen a close-up photograph of Einstein? Einstein was probably one of the most brilliant intellects in history. His face, to me, is a picture of meekness because he knows so much. And the more you know, the more you know you don't know. And Socrates said, the man who knows 
that he doesn't know is a much wiser man than the man who doesn't know that he doesn't know. <laughs> and it takes us a long time to find out that we don't know very much. You know what the word sophomore means. It just means the one who thinks he knows it all. And it's amazing after you're a sophomore in college, then when you're a junior and a senior, you suddenly begin to realize that your parents are getting smarter and smarter <laughs> because you realize that you really don't know nearly as much as you thought you knew. The meekness that comes from wisdom. And where does wisdom begin with the fear of the Lord? That is the beginning of wisdom. Now, I said at the beginning that this word is what I believe is the key to supernatural power. Where did I get that idea? Well, from Jesus. He said, the meek shall inherit the earth. It doesn't look as though that's happening, does it? The meek seem to be the last in line. It is an explicitly spiritual quality. It is a learned quality, not natural. We're not born with it. It is a practiced course in our lives. We have to learn through the ordinary little irritating things, anything at all that cuts across my will, anything at all that inconveniences me, how do I respond? Meekness springs from love. Do I respond in love to God? All of my relationship with my friends, with my family, with strangers should spring from my relationship to God. Is it a meek, gentle, quiet, humble, loving spirit? Mom Cunningham's was. Gentle, just the sort of person you know she could put her arms around the whole world and everybody would love her because she loved everybody as she did. It is the key to supernatural power. Of course, our model, model, model is always Jesus. And we look at the meekness of Jesus. Strong, mighty, powerful to do miracles. His name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But what did he do? In that last supper with his disciples, he actually sat down at the table with the man that he knew was going to betray him. He said, the man who dips his hand in the bowl with me now is the one who will betray me. He not only allowed Judas to eat with him, he got down on his knees and washed the feet of Judas and all the other disciples. He took, in other words, the lowest place of the lowest slave in an Eastern household. Think of that towel and that basin. Is there anything that has to deal with more disgusting stuff? You nurses know what I'm talking about. Jesus was willing to wash the feet. He let Judas kiss him there in the garden. And he looked with love on Peter when Peter had just betrayed him with serene 
unflappable love, wounded love, sorrowful love, but not bitter, not angry, not rejecting. But he looked on Peter. I will never forget visiting the church in Jerusalem, which is built for the memory of that night when Jesus was betrayed. It's called the Church of the Crowing Cock. Some of you have been there. And it happened that there were no tourists there. I was the only person. And there was a very young Dutch priest who was in charge that day and took me through very slowly, told me this whole story, took me down into the dungeon where Jesus is said to have been kept during that night. And then we sat together in a pew there in the church. And he said, I don't know what this experience in Jerusalem will mean to you. But he said, I pray that it will be as significant in your life as it was, as the look of Jesus was in Peter's life. When the cock crowed, Jesus looked on Peter. And he said, may Jesus look on you today. Meekness. Think of what he has put up with in you and me. Are you having trouble forgiving somebody? Somebody who has done something, humanly speaking, which is absolutely unforgivable. Something for which there are no excuses whatsoever and no human way of ever letting go. Compare that with what you and I have done. Each of us individually, let us think of what Jesus has suffered from us. And the look of Jesus on the man who had just betrayed him so blatantly, the man whom he had named Peter, the rock on which he was to build his church, that man says, I, I never knew him. I don't know what you're talking about. And Jesus turns and looks on him. It was a force that was irresistible. The meekness of Jesus more irresistible than any earthly power. There's never any tit for tat in the life of a meek woman or a meek man. And of course, the great question is, how do I attain this? How can I, so sinful, how can I, whose life is lived in this fallen, broken world, and I have to live with sinners. Even Lars, this man that was up here on this platform, he's not perfect. He's wonderful, but he's not perfect. And you know what Lars has to live with? A sinner. Yes. How shall I learn this? Do you know that hymn, Eternal Light, Eternal Light? How shall I, whose native sphere is dark, whose mind is dim, before the ineffable appear, and on that on my naked spirit bear the uncreated being. There is a way for man to rise to that sublime abode, an offering and a sacrifice, a Holy Spirit's energies, an advocate with God. It's not beyond the realm of possibility, but I must learn to live spiritually with Jesus. I must learn to dwell with him, to allow his love to pierce my heart.
this hard-crusted heart. I pray for the piercing of that love. The minute I, my territory, my time, my space is invaded, the minute there's some aggression that comes toward me, the minute I receive a nasty letter in the mail, what is my reaction? Do I lift my eyes to his face? I must immediately take that thing and lift it up into the light of the face of Jesus Christ. How does it look to you, Lord? And he reminds me, how did my tormentors look to me? Dwell in that light. Bring the insults, the hurts, all of them. Learn of me, he says. Learn of me. Meekness is entirely detached from self-assertion. How are we to learn this in a world that tells us, learn to assert yourself. Do your own thing. Be aggressive. Stand up for your rights. Protest for your rights. Learn to love yourself. I was appalled a few months ago when I received in the same mail two magazines. One was a Christian magazine in which the lead story was entitled, How to Love Yourself. And there were many suggestions. Be good to yourself, be proud of yourself, learn to praise yourself, and on and on. And do you know what the other magazine was? I think it was US News or World, and World Report. It was not Time Magazine, but it was one of those news magazines. And the cover story was called The, Cur the Curse of Self-Esteem. <laughs> the Curse of Self-Esteem. And I found a wonderful quotation there, which I hope I will never forget. It was from Goethe, the German philosopher. And he said, I don't know myself. Only God knows who I am, and may God deliver me from ever finding out. <laughs> learn of me, Jesus says. Not learn to love me. Not learn to know who Elizabeth Elliot is. Who cares? What does it matter? May God, for, may God forbid that I ever find out what she's really like. I want to learn of him. I want his meekness, not my natural temperament. I want to be entirely detached from self-assertion. I want an utterly new and different response to those things which would naturally make me lash out. Nothing could be more remote from feminine fragility, a phlegmatic temperament, a don't-care attitude, a weak sentimentalism, than true holy meekness. But this meekness is indissolubly linked in the Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah. Do you remember in the book of the Revelation where John said that the angel told him, I'm going to show you the Lion of Judah. And when he looked, it was a lamb. A lamb that looked as if it had been sacrificed. Can you think of anything meeker? The strength, the power of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Lion of Judah, and the meekness of the lamb which before her shearers is dumb. He opened not his mouth. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. 
He was taken to prison and to judgment. He gave his back to the smiters and his cheeks to those who pulled out the hair. That's my savior. Come to me, he says, all you who are tired and overburdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, meek and lowly. And you will find rest for your souls. May God give us that holy meekness for Jesus' sake. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. <laughs>